What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Michael Phillips. Black and blue. Fight night. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. God versus man. Day versus night. Son of Krypton versus Bat of Gotham. Good read there, Jesse. I guess we don't really see you as the Don King type. Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Our review of the mostly fanboy-approved slash critically derided new film, plus the top five Batman-Superman movie moments, and the Film Spotting Madness Elite 8 is revealed at the jam-packed show ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is presented by our friends at MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Up this week on MUBI, Film Spotting's namesake, Train Spotting, from director Danny Boyle. It took off like a rocket from the opening bang of Iggy Pop and Ewan McGregor's monologue. It was like a door was kicked in. Funny, terrifying, spasming with musical energy that never subsides. The stylized plunge through drug culture is a seminal 90s hit, launching both McGregor and Boyle. Mubi is also offering two stellar American indies. I used to be darker. Matt Porterfield's 2013 drama funded on Kickstarter and feeded at Berlin Al, gently tugging at its characters' lives in a musical key. It reminds us that what we love about American indies is alive and well. And also something, anything. When a tragedy shatters her plans for domestic bliss, a seemingly typical Southern newlywed gradually transforms into a spiritual seeker, quietly threatening the closest relationships around her in this Tennessee indie feature debut. So one classic film worth revisiting and two that probably many of us, including myself, need to visit. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. You can also download those films to watch offline via their mobile app. Film Spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar, and this week with Josh Away, my original Justice League-inspired concept for this show It unfortunately fell through, Michael Phillips. I was going to have a different superhero critic join me for each segment. Right. You were going to join me for the middle segment. I've got you now for both, and there's never anything wrong with more Michael Phillips. I just don't want to be Richard Pryor in that third Superman movie, that, uh-huh. you know, the comic relief that just actually ends up turning the whole thing sour. And, Uh-oh. You're yeah, on to me. That's exactly that. what I was going for here. I want <laughs> you are going to join me to talk Batman v Superman here in a moment, and you're going to get to stick around and make a mockery of our beloved film spotting madness as well. That should be fun. That's my job, baby. (laughs) Later in the show, we will share our Sweet 16 Madness results. And then, after that, some very special guests will join me for the top five Batman-Superman moments. Favorite scenes from our favorite movies featuring Superman and the Cape Crusader. That's a lot of films. you got a lot to choose from. You do, indeed. Some including that aren't even part of those franchises, maybe. You could branch out. They have appeared in other films that aren't necessarily Batman, Superman movies. So we'll see if any of those make an appearance. First, though, why are Batman and Superman trying to kill each other? Why are Michael and I even talking about this movie a week after its release? Neither director Zack Snyder nor we have answers, but hey, we do have more questions. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world 
should be a figure of controversy. We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. We're talking about a being Alien. whose very existence they are not telling us the truth. challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. Human beings have a horrible track record of Tragedy. following people with great power. Power corrupts. And absolute power, power corrupts absolutely. Chaos. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right no, thing. We know better now, don't we? Devils don't come from hell beneath us. They brought their war here. No, they come from the sky. The world has been so caught up with what he can do that no one has asked what he should do. Go home, go home, go home, go home. That's how it starts. It doesn't happen all the time, but it is the norm here on Film Spotting for us to review movies the week after they're released. This is almost solely due to practical scheduling issues, but it actually seems to work better for our format and audience. If we're going to have a long conversation about a movie, why not give people a chance to see it first and be more actively involved in the discussion? In over 11 years, I can't think of a movie that has really tested this rationale until now. <laughs> so, you know, way to go, Zack Snyder. Not only has every critic and fan already weighed in, but all the critics v. box office think pieces and lists of the 57 things wrong with Batman v. Superman have all been published, processed, and by now, probably forgotten. For the record, all 57 of those things are wrong with Batman v. Superman, and the list might be short, in fact. Appropriately for a movie that at least portends to be about existential crises, for Superman doing good for humanity seems to constantly lead to harm for humanity, for Batman saving humanity from the threat of Superman means risking almost certain suicide or something, I'm in the midst of an existential crisis right now. Perhaps if one of us was going to play contrarian and make our case for Batman v. Superman, we could justify this review. Are you the man to make that case, Michael? <laughs> That's what I thought. I'm also yeah. going to say that the chances of either of us having a take on why the movie is such a disaster that hasn't already been written up and hashed over are pretty slim. So here's the best plan I've got. Let's be the Christopher Reeve Superman to Henry Cavill's Dark Knight. Uh, Let's be positive. Focus on what does work about Batman v Superman. Before that, although arguably a question better suited for two people who have devoted good chunks of their lives to reading comic books about suited men, let's try to get a little more philosophical. I'm curious where you stand on how much freedom Zack Snyder or any filmmaker should have when it comes to fundamentally altering the characters of mythological figures like Superman and Batman, who are so firmly established in the pop culture consciousness. Superman, historically, fights for truth, justice, and the American way, rarely if ever expresses rage, is always cognizant of preserving human life, and doesn't kill even the enemies who are decidedly aiming to kill him. That isn't Snyder's Superman. Batman, historically, also punishes but doesn't kill. We can all remember Batman struggling to save bad guy Jack Napier and only accidentally dropping him into the vat of acid, and even preventing Joker from falling to his death in The Dark Knight. And while he may have doubts about the efficacy of his actions, he isn't so cynical and disillusioned that a perceived end justifies any means. That isn't Snyder's Batman. Michael, are Snyder's heroes not compelling because they're stuck in a poorly conceived and executed movie or because they're really not heroes anymore? You know, the answer is yes to everything. Everything. And, and I know that's a, that's a broad way to start, but you have, you have to start with that. You know, this is not a Snyder script, although he had, I'm sure, a lot of input and certainly could have had another person on at the other end in an uncredited rewrite uh, or two. Who knows? But everything you said is absolutely right. I, don't, I, don't, I simply get no dark pleasure out of seeing these two guys trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. Period. 
Okay, that's that's a sort that's a somewhat serious uh, scenario issue. Okay, yes. for me and this movie, uh, I don't think uh, pushing Bruce Wayne uh, into this sort of sociopathic killer who's branding sex predators and all that. And the whole movie's got this really kind of like pervy sex predator vibe anyway. I mean, Lex Luthor at one point, Jesse Eisenberg, mutters something about being abused by his father. And, I mean, it's and like, he puts a Jolly Rancher in a guy's mouth you know, it's like for I'm some not, reason. Yeah, so the whole movie's got that, you know, it's and, yeah. this, and this is in fact the guy who directed Sucker Punch and Watchmen. And he's, you know, he's, he's certainly conversant with pushing all this you know, if you want to broadly define a kind of comic book gamer sort of universe uh, is, is into the darkest corners he can, right? Mm-hmm. Fine. You could say the same about Christopher Nolan. Certainly with the second Batman film and the third, interesting, I think, distinctions there because The Dark Knight to me is the peak achievement by far in the Nolan trilogy just because it, you know, for my taste, it went just far enough in terms of really – testing the conception of the character and mm-hmm. pushing and pushing and pushing and just, you know, you know, teasing out some pretty interesting sort of moral conundrums, you know, and and, uh, and dealing with a, a fair amount of really rough violence. But you have this unbelievable activating factor of Heath Ledger's Joker in the middle of it, which is just an extraordinary performance, yeah. right? The key thing with what's wrong with Batman versus Superman is, I, I guess, twofold. A, Zack Snyder has no facility visually for action of any kind, none. He when when he has, it's like as I brought in review, he's he's like a gamer who's lost track of the time. Those fight scenes have no shape, rhythm, momentum. All they are is long and punishing. Indeed, and I, I just think that doesn't get me anywhere because mm-hmm. he's he does in IMAX particularly when you are dealing with handheld cameras in this sort of what is by now the most hackneyed faux documentary style of filming to give it that quote gritty realism right. That's no way to treat this sort of action. And the individual action sequences, and there's a hell of a lot of them, and they're very long in, in this film, just simply don't pay off. Uh, and they're, not, they're just so poorly conceived visually that there's nothing to it. So when you have a director that s- truly doesn't have the right visual approach to, to any aspect of this material, what are you left with? You, you, can, you can argue all you want about whether or not you know, the characters are true to the origins, or if they're not true, are they untrue in interesting ways, or are we kind of upending things while maybe offering a glimmer of hope or recognition of the of the icons we know and love from childhood or from the last three movies or whatever? But it, it's people talk about Snyder's visual technique as if it's kind of incidental to the result. You know, this is the the guy, I'm sorry, but he's, you know, he's he's one of the worst successful filmmakers in America right now. And I think it's a shame because he's not bereft of ideas. And he's, he's you know, if you look back, even just one Superman movie, Man of Steel, which I was sort of indifferent to at the time, but there's actually whole sequences in that film that work and kind of take their time and kind of give you at least some sense of visual authority. I'm thinking back to the kind of the farm sequences, yeah. the tornado, you know, things like that. Uh, and then you get the, the the bad side of Snyder in that film too, which is that climactic, horrible scene with horrible. Zion. And this is basically this whole movie's an apology for that it sequence. Is. And so I don't know. You know, I I think truly I do not understand the people who defend this movie, whether they're fanboys 
or comic book haters. I don't. If you're not going to work up a certain amount of resentment on this film, I don't know what you're saving it for. Can't argue with anything you said, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about the things that actually work. If there are any things that actually work, the about most I this can film. say is there's a few scenes in Man of Steel I don't mind. <laughs> well, along those lines, I'm going to completely contradict myself and say that. I actually rate this movie just slightly higher than Man of Steel. You're but wrong. That's because You're wrong. I also really hated Man of Steel. Oh, you hate it. Okay. And the only reason for that has to do with how much CGI there is. There's actually less in this film overall than there is in Man of Steel. Huh. Again, we can get into that a little bit. There are, to your point, actual sequences and actual shots in Man of Steel that are far more memorable and interesting than anything that happens in this film. So that's hence the contradiction, right, 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 unfortunately. Right. But to this question about kind of how we appropriate these characters and whether it's true to the origins or not. This really came from a conversation I was having with my brother-in-law over the weekend, who's a fan of the comic books and of most of the movies. And he hated this movie for all the reasons you enumerated and most people have enumerated, but also did have real misgivings about the fact that that's just not who Batman and Superman are. Hmm. They shouldn't act the way they do. You can't alter that. It's almost like you might as well give them new names and new outfits because they cease being Batman and Superman when they're so fundamentally untrue well, okay, look, to, to who they have been. True enough, true enough. And I, I agree with that. But I think I think you could actually push them in that direction. And if you had anybody who's whose facility for violence, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. even call it action. It's just, it's yeah. simply it's simply the movie is simply about violence and rage, and that's it. It's not about interesting, you know. Act, no. And and Snyder, look, Christopher Nolan is no action master either. He's really more about other things. And when you think of the action sequences in The Dark Knight, they're not the best things in the movie. No, they're not. But um, and there's only a handful. Of, and even even directors I really personally don't jibe with or whose movies I don't really like, like Michael Bay. There's a visual style that's actually kind of rigorous and in its in its in its repellent way kind of meticulous that is completely missing from something like a, a movie you're like right. this yeah, yeah you're yeah. totally right and whether or not this movie works or not and again let's be clear it certainly does not i am generally fully on board with that type of creative license though advancing these characters whether it may actually seem like they're devolving in some way. I don't know if there's a perfect middle ground, but if you think about it, Michael, I don't think anyone could argue that the Christopher Reeve Superman, that kind of, hi, ma'am, you lost your cat. Here I am returning it to you. That doesn't really make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense in 2016. And I think whether it's monsters like vampires and zombies or superheroes, I think artists should be reappropriating these myths to reflect our time. So He's maybe set out to do that. Again, whether or not he pulled it off, the answer is he didn't. But I do think Bruce Wayne's anxiety and the fear we see here, I think that would lead him to do things that aren't necessarily fundamental to what he believes in. And I do think that reflects an anxiety that exists in the world okay, today, but, right? But, but, but the movie itself doesn't take an interesting uh, dramatic or moral stance toward these actions. I, I agree. Think, I think it just completely has a kind of a muddle-headed approval of all of it. And right. I think that's – so you get a movie that is, A, as, um, kind of a train wreck visually, and B, it's sort of morally scrambled and brainless and not, not like provocative and no, ambiguous. I, I get it's you. just a mess. Yeah. Uh, again, it, it does not pay off here, but within the week of me seeing this – this movie, the attacks in Belgium, Turkey, Pakistan, they all happened. And I was talking to my father-in-law over the weekend, too, for Easter, and he mentioned a guy they know on a mission of sorts. He was doing something humanitarian-related in Pakistan. He's okay. And my father-in-law was noting how crazy that is. And actually, for the first time really ever, Michael, it hit me that 
I don't know that there's really anywhere in the world I believe to be totally safe anymore. Right. It's not just those types of places that you envision as being unsafe. It's now kind of everywhere. And so that anxiety, I understand kind of the impulses to either want to ensure safety at whatever cost or get revenge. I understand, again, the impulses for that or to pull a John Goodman in 10 Cloverfield Lane and just hide yourself in the bunker. Those extremes seem to be almost the only answer, though neither is the ideal way to live. Mm -hmm. So I just like the fact, separate from this movie almost, Michael, I like the fact that these heroes suffer from that anxiety and they bear the burden of it. On a basic level, I like that. And even preparing for this review, you see CNN showing news of a gunman at the U.S. Capitol, right? You get that imagery in this movie as well. Mark Zuckerberg today came out with an article on his Facebook page, and there was a headline about him saying the recent wave of terror attacks were designed to spread fear and distrust. And I'm thinking, wow, life and art are really colliding here, folks. This is basically something Lex Luthor might have said in this movie. You might have seen that headline. Yeah, and the movie, I think the movie's general grinding joylessness Mm -hmm. does, does. Kind of, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, like you know, the the 12 year old me, or maybe the 10 year old sits next to you mm-hmm. when you see it, because I mean, a lot of people are taking the kids. Look, I walked on the Isle of Jewel, and I, what do I see? Batman cereal. The, right. You know, tell me this thing isn't being pitched to five year olds. You're on right. Some, and I think you'd be insane to take a five year old. No, no, but, you're totally right. But I, so the movie's tone and all these images and all these anxieties are channeled into. What is really just sort of a dull revenge uh, piece about about just sort of like just striking back. And I think that's about the dumbest thing a big movie can do. Stay down! If I wanted it, you'd be dead already. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's not profitable and satisfying to the masses <laughs> when it's done well, but... I don't know. I, the Nolan pictures, the Nolan Batman trilogy, some of which I liked. I mean, the middle one I think is terrific, and the uh, the first one good. The third one problematic, but those are those are movies made by an adult. And I think Zack Snyder's a punk adolescent with no visual style. So yeah. uh, to me, uh, that's reason enough to write it off. Let alone what it's doing in terms of people's images of these famous characters, Batman and Superman. Uh, maybe I'm more of a traditionalist than I realize with this, Adam, because going into the film, I truly didn't have an have an image I needed to adhere to with yeah. Batman and Superman. But I think back to why. <laughs> but the image you saw, you didn't like. I didn't like it. And But, you know, I think back to a movie that and this is a more controversial uh, opinion uh, than, than the one we're sharing here. But who framed Roger Rabbit? Not a film I like. Did I, on some level, resist seeing the Disney characters and the Warner Brothers cartoon characters mix it up in this sort of sardonic, somewhat cynical milieu? No, I didn't like that. And I didn't know I wouldn't like that right. until I saw it and sort Understood. of experienced it. You know, and someday I'll maybe retract my Roger Rabbit opinion because people <laughs> seem to think it's about as stupid as me not liking Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, they're crazy because it's nowhere near as good oh, as Raiders. And it's actually very nice. I'm with you that I actually don't like it either. Roger I, Rabbit? Yeah, We're I'm not a big pi- fan. Oh, yeah, oh, my okay. co-host right now is somehow hearing this from Washington, D.C. and losing his mind. I guess my only point back to Batman and Superman was just that making the heroes more like villains and not having them be consistent with their past incarnations is far from what's wrong with Batman v. Superman. The problems are, among all the other things we've said, are how unconvincingly I think Snyder establishes whatever their individual ideologies are supposed to be and then how ineffectively he distinguishes them in order to justify their inevitable showdown. It's just not there. Superman's issues with Batman don't even end up 
factoring into why they fight. So it's just another wasted kind of plot through line. Okay, but but I hate that fight. That's, yeah. that's the key sequence in the film, and it's ten of the worst minutes in every way I've seen. And I just and I all you can do is sort of put. I think it, it gets worse though. The fight actually gets worse after the Batman Superman stuff. Oh, with the uh, with the, yeah, with the actual creature they the end creature up fighting. From, That's where yeah. it goes. I mean, if it wasn't already completely off the rails, that I mean, first of I, I, first it's of done. All, first of all, I never want to see the Mucinex. You know, uh, 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 really? snot monster. I mean, that's you know, what it used is. Used that way, I just don't like it. I, I agree with you because the villain, the notion that anyone would sit there and say, "I've got an idea for the perfect villain for a superhero movie. Let's just make it a blob. Let's just make it a blob that has no motivation for really anything it's doing. It's just a big blob that likes to destroy things, and that's what our heroes are going to fight." It's crazy. The that blo- that's where they ended up in this I, movie. I, I will say, okay, here's one thing I liked. I, here's one thing I liked about the film. The blob actually has more teeth than the movie itself. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. Michael Phillips here joining me to, unfortunately, continue to pile on Batman v Superman. And we talked a little bit about Man of Steel, the previous film, and tying in with this notion of the versions of Batman and how we enjoy seeing them change or not change over time. Maybe I'm more of a pragmatist about it because I'm not beholden to any ethos that comes from the comic books. But I remember people being very angry in Man of Steel with the fact that he killed General Zod at the end of that film as if Superman should never do such a thing. And I'm watching it going, okay, he is about to actually incinerate human beings. Zod is in that film. You completely understand why Superman in that moment would would do that. I, I didn't understand people being upset about that. The anger about him being so unconcerned with human life that he participated in just annihilating a very obviously inhabited metropolis in that battle with Zod that led up to that. The problem with that, Michael, wasn't that it was in conflict with who Superman is supposed to be. It's in conflict with who he is in that movie. He's always saving people. It's clearly his instinct to save people. He's compassionate. He's empathetic. He's aware of what's going on around him all the time. And then all of a sudden, for the last 30 minutes of the movie, Man of Steel asks us to accept that all of a sudden, all that goes out the window, and he loses all of those traits and just destroys this city. It makes no sense, and the only reason it's there, we quickly realize, is because it has to be. The franchise needs him to destroy Metropolis to set up this movie and movies beyond. So it's not consistent with the character we're given throughout that whole film Forget the fact that it may not be consistent with Superman throughout the ages. Now, did you see this little interview with Michael Shannon a couple weeks ago? I did. Which, I, which okay, that's like, another thing. That's another reason I'm glad. I'm utterly unconcerned with that fight. <laughs> is what I'm he glad, said. Basically. This is why. This is one of the reasons I am glad for at least the existence of this Zack Snyder film, Batman vs Superman, just so Michael Shannon can say, "I really don't care who I wins." I don't care. You know. Yeah. I just no. Don't, you know. I'm with you. Okay, so maybe you already gave me the one thing you come up with, but what works in Batman v Superman? You know, on a, on a okay, I, the fifteen-year-old me, I like Amy Adams and mm-hmm. I like uh, Wonder Woman, uh, Gal, Gal Gadot. Gadot. Yeah, and and I think when when I mean, I hate the way she's she doesn't sho- belong in this nah, movie. Nah, I hate the way she's shoehorned in here and yeah, there, just ridiculous. to kind of just to kind of let you know, oh, she's got her movie coming. Don't yeah. worry. But when she shows up in one of the climactic battles. The audience I saw it with was clearly relieved and kind of hey there she is. and it was more, but it wasn't really it wasn't really like hey great that's a great dramatic use of this character it's more no. like thank God where somebody can interrupt this <laughs> somebody else <laughs> fight and just you know let these testosterone rage uh-huh. heads settle it and we'll get onto her film yeah. that's what I wanted no to I'm I'm with you completely I think though I'm pro Affleck as Batman. 
How do you uh, fine. come down there? I don't look. The actors are the last thing going no, wrong with right. this movie. And I, I, I know that everybody was so insanely focused on whether or not Affleck would make a good movie. I know. It was like it was like a. a we national... seem to take him for granted, and then he ends up delivering more often than not. Yeah, but it, I mean, the way it was treated was like the great national question of the age. <laughs> exactly. And uh, you know, it's fine. But again, yeah. he doesn't. You know, the problem is he has to say what he has to say in the film and do what he has to do, and it's just not. There's nothing interesting about. Well, it. Well, with Josh not here today, I thought I'd at least get in his counterpoint. Where in his review he said Ben Affleck taking on the role of Bruce Wayne for the first time begins the film looking haggard and ends it barely awake, and <laughs> he doesn't like the performance as you might ascertain there, but. I've just come to accept that Ben Affleck is an actor that really doesn't exude charisma. He's always a little bit sleepy on screen to me. He's that way in Argo even, and that's a thriller, of course. But here, for some reason, I did think it worked. There's a world weariness that fits this Batman that we've been talking about. And even in his interactions with Alfred, and look, I'll watch Jeremy Irons on screen in anything. Right, I agree. I think think actually he is one of the the strengths of the picture. There's no question about it. But when they talk, and Alfred is constantly following up things Bruce Wayne will say and kind of raining on his parade a little bit and instead of it being like christian bale in the batman movies where alfred will say those things and he'll really kind of consider them and it might change his approach bruce wayne here affleck just kind of shrugs like oh there you go again but I- i'm too busy focusing on this I- i've already made it my mind i don't care what you have well, to it's say. funny when you get when you get christian bale's uh, bruce wayne and and now in retrospect he seems so much warmer so much warmer and more relatable he does. than ben affleck yeah <laughs> you know and christian bale is not is not really an open book and a warm and a warm no. presence, but he's. Uh, you're right. I mean, but he really comes off like much more of a louche party yes. boy and just kind of basically hung over. Well, that's it. And you could argue that he is cool. There are elements to Bale's Batman where you would think he was cool. And Michael Keaton as Batman is cool because Michael Keaton is cool all the time, even if he's a little bit deranged in that movie, and he truly is. Bale is charming and handsome and all these things that Affleck really doesn't play, whether he has them in him or not. They don't come out in this performance. I guess I like the fact that Affleck's willing to make Batman really uncool in every way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Matt, does, it, does it pay off after the I'm fifth reaching. scene, though? I'm reaching, Michael, for something I appreciated about this film, and that's I mean, it. I don't want to. I don't want to hear that on the on the uh, DVD commentary, Adam. I don't want to hear you <laughs> explaining why you think what he's doing is really effective. But that cool. is one of the things I was surprised by with this film, considering it is ostensibly a sequel to Man of Steel. Yeah, it's a Batman movie. Right. Superman is completely second fiddle right. to Batman in this film. They give us the origin story of Batman again. They set up better than they do with Superman why he views the world the way he does and why he might see Superman as a threat. We don't get that flip side with Superman. No, we don't. No. And I think and that was a corporate directive. I mean, the film, I think when this was announced, it wasn't necessarily going to lean that far toward the Batman thing. But he, it's, just a, it's just a more proven commodity at the box office. Maybe so, that's it. There you go. That would make sense, as it seems to drive most of the decisions that were made with this film. Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, currently playing at a theater near you. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes and based on the box office, everybody did see it. And, you can write us. And do they agree or do they disagree? We'll find out. We'll find out. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Okay. We can now forget Batman and Superman. Who comes out on top when Paul Thomas, Boogie Knight Anderson, and Spike Wild Thing Jones face off in round two of Film Spotting Madness? Sweet 16 results and more when we come back. Stay with us. I don't believe everything happens for a reason. Us romantics out here that amounts to high treason. I don't go 
for your star-crossed lover In the heart of a skeptic There's a question that still hovers near For it begs the question How did I ever find you Now you got me writing love songs To come in a frame like this one here Baby Just pray to another Pray to your backhanded love song, baby But it begs the question How did I ever find you? Dad? Yeah? Are you scared? Yes You don't have to worry about me I like worrying about you You don't have to anymore I'll always worry about you. Um, that's the deal. And our deal is that we'll stop worrying about Midnight Special when it actually makes it into theaters. That was General Zod himself, Michael Shannon, in a clip there from the long-awaited new film from writer-director Jeff Nichols. It does appear, Michael, that it's actually going to open in limited release, including here in Chicago. This weekend, it's the film Josh and I are planning to review on next week's show. Obviously, we've been anticipating this one for a long time. I know you recently had a chance to sit down with Jeff Nichols. I didn't read it, Michael just because I don't want to know anything more about the movie I'm or sorry, you, his thoughts on it. I'm sorry, I know. You didn't read my piece? I know. It's terrible. You know, it's funny. In that interview with Nichols, I didn't let him talk. I just I just felt like I had more interesting things to say. And <laughs> I was, talk, was talking about some family issues and um, some books I'd read. Uh, How did that go? I don't know. He kept interrupting. It pissed yeah. me off, actually. <laughs> but you've seen this movie, and I don't want to get into it too much because well, I let haven't me, seen it yet. Let me and tell you what happens at the end. It. I'm going to tell yeah. you the ending. Go for the it. Ending. I mean, the ending? No, I'm not I won't it. even watch the trailers. Why don't you go ahead and tell me the ending? But are you a fan of Midnight Special, Michael? Uh, I would recommend it. Great. Um, it's. Uh, I need to see it again, I think, to figure out a little better exactly what works well and what works less well. But I'm eager to hear what you guys have to say. Are Truly, you? I mean it. Yeah, see, I'm I mean, not quite buying that. But... I say that in many contexts, and I don't mean it. This time I mean it. Okay. I think this came from your interview. It says in my notes that Jeff Nichols said, I didn't make Warner Brothers a clear awards contender. They weren't really sure what I'd made them. I just hope people like it. That was on the planned November 2015 release and why it was changed. Right. Is that what he told you, Mike? Uh, that's true. Uh, that's not the kind of quote that tends to make the posters. No. Uh, <laughs> but he's just an honest guy. He's what an, are you going to do? No, he is, a, he is a lovely, honest interview, truly. I okay. mean, he, as you, you know this. You've I've talked, talked to, him. to him on the phone. He weighed in on our Sight and Sound show, which you were a part of, where we did our top 10 kind of movies of all time. Right. He submitted a list to the BFI for that, and we had him on, but never been able to interact with him in person. I'm hoping to do that at some point here down the road. Well, he's I, and he's got a new film coming out. Uh, it's going to uh, premiere at Cannes, which I hear, and he, not a, a horn blower, this guy. He's not a mm-hmm. guy to toot his own horn, but he says, you know, this new film I really think is Is that quite beautiful. Loving, the one Loving. with Edgerton? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am. I'm excited about that one as well. Jeff Nichols, a part of Film Spotting Madness. We'll see for how long as we get to the results here in just a bit. But first, we did want to share a little bit of Golden Brick Spotting. The Golden Brick, of course, our annual award that we give out to our favorite 
overlooked, underseen, underpromoted movie of the year, always made by a new or emerging filmmaker, a film that shows a real kind of clear distinct vision. Jeff Nichols takes shelter up for The Golden Brick and was the listener's choice winner the year it was released. And there are two movies that are also opening in Chicago this weekend and out in limited release that one of us has seen and we're going to recommend. I've seen Born to be Blue, the Chet Baker biopic with Ethan Hawke. You've seen Krisha, which is a new film from a director named Trey Edward Schultz. And I know you are a big fan. Big fan. Four stars. I don't want to reduce it in a facile way to, to stars, but yeah. this this tiny little Texas indie made by a guy who was a an assistant on a couple of Terrence Malick projects and you know, made, made a short film called Cretia and then developed that into a feature, which is a very simple story about a Thanksgiving family reunion in Houston and an aunt who arrives and falls off the wagon. And that's all you need to know. There's no more plot than that. That's every family gathering for me. I mean, why do I want to watch that, Michael? (laughs) Well, yours, I think, have a special uh, layer of tragedy because they're set in Iowa. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's... No, I love Iowa. I kid Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you like driving through it like everyone else, right? No, I kid kid the Hawkeyes. Um, uh, It's really good. And and, and it's a film that, uh, tragically, in Chicago is being booked only at the AMC 600 multiplex. It's not a downtown Friday night kind of movie, dinner and a movie It's a music box landmark kind of movie. Why it's not over there, I don't know. Mm. And it's a film that needed to be found at at Cannes, and it played a sidebar competition there. And luckily, Wesley Morris, uh, formerly of Grantland, now of the New York Times, told me, look, I just saw something really good. You should consider seeing it. Very glad I took his suggestion because yeah. it's, it's easily one of the best new movies I've seen. Okay. So that's all you need to know? That is all you need to small know, mo- certainly. Small movie, not for the plot dependent. Got it. That's all you need to know. All you need to know if you want to seek it out, but also all you need to know for why it's eligible now for the Golden Brick Award. Josh and I don't even need to see it. Michael, you putting it on the record has made it a nominee for the Golden Brick, but I am excited to catch up with it, which I hope to do this weekend. The movie I saw again, Born to be Blue, this is the Chet Baker biopic, and I just watched this film last night. And then this morning I happened to catch a tweet from Alan Shurstel, who's the film editor for The Village Voice, and he was not talking about Born to be Blue or biopics, but he said, Clark Racing Train in Donner Superman, Ray Noshing Bread slash cosplay playing with a helmet, why are such character moments so rare in blockbusters? Hmm. And it resonated with me, having just seen Born to be Blue, because it made me realize that those types of character moments are also so rare in biopics. Biopics always seem to be about serving the plot. This happened. Relentlessly Then this happened. Yeah, 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 then this happened. And they're explaining what drives the character, what drives often their self-destructiveness in a very palatable way. I think it usually tries to let them off the hook for their behavior, invite our sympathy, and see them as a tragic figure and not really just human. And the thing about Born to be Blue that really struck me is it's all character moments Hmm. that really nicely do congeal together ultimately into a satisfying narrative. And the construction, I think, in general, Michael, sneaks up on you because it combines present day stuff, flashbacks. There's a little bit of meta-ness to it as well, where they are making a movie about Chet Baker's life within the movie about Chet Baker's life. And that's not a huge part of the film, but you do get that aspect as well. But it really is more of a mood piece, like one of Baker's ballads you hear in the movie, than it is a biopic that's focused on hitting all the right notes about what made Chet Baker famous and, again, what made him self-destruct. It gets the music right. It gets the musicianship right. Ethan Hawke, it might be his best performance. Mm. And mm. there are quite a few Hawk performances I enjoy. Carmen Ejogo, also really good. She was Coretta Scott King in Selma. Oh, yeah. And she plays here his 
girlfriend, really his main love interest in the film, revolves around that as much as it revolves around anything, that central relationship. They're both really good. They both deserve some consideration at awards time for whatever that's worth, but definitely recommend Born to be Blue, which I believe is the sophomore effort from a director I had otherwise not heard of, Robert Boudreaux. Definitely curious now to see what's next from him. So both those films, Born to be Blue and Krisha, are on the list of Golden Brick nominees. If you have seen them or get a chance to see them, let us know what you think. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, in Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Does the number one overall seed, Paul Thomas Anderson, have enough competition in him to move on to the next round of film spotting madness? We will see in a second. Michael, since you are joining us for the first time during the madness, we'll give you a little bit of background on the criteria. We started with 32 currently active film spotting favorite directors. And by the end of this segment, we'll be down to the elite eight. Only one of them gets to make another film. That's basically how we're looking at it. So while keeping in mind the director's previous work, the vote really is about your interest in seeing their future Mm. work. So that scenario we've used a few times now. You're at a theater. You can only see one film from director A or B. Which theater do you walk into? That Mm. is the question. For those of you who are listening and you want to follow along and see the bracket as we go through the results, the link is challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. And that's challenge with an O dot com slash fs madness 2016 that is just the bracket though that's not where you vote you vote over at our website filmspotting.net the second round did only feature one upset based on how we initially seated these filmmakers and how we thought voting would go and we did get the rare come from behind victory doesn't seem to happen once someone kind of takes off in the Mm. voting because Sam and I are constantly refreshing. We somehow get a real kick, Michael, out of watching how this voting goes. So Zack Snyder snuck in there. Zack Snyder snuck in. <laughs> really come from behind wow. on that one. But we'll get to how that shook out here in a moment. We'll start with the first matchup, Paul Thomas Anderson versus Spike Jones in the Sweet 16. Matt wrote in, in my humble opinion, Spike and PTA are the two greatest modern filmmakers of our time. So this is tough. I tried Adam's theater dilemma trick only to envision myself holding up the ticket line in indecision. After some careful thought, I've tearfully given PTA my vote. As much as I love Spike and everything he's done, the thought of another film on par with There Will Be Blood is too good to pass up. I'm with Matt on that. George Knapper says there's a competition in me, and the winner gets a milkshake. Spike Jones made one of the most insightful romances ever with her, I agree with that, and probably the most emotionally resident children's movie ever with Where the Wild Things Are. I agree with that. The fact that these modern masterpieces are pitted against all-time greats like Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood is unfair at best and splitting hairs at worst. But I guess this matchup was destined to be a nail-biter, and PTA wins with a last-minute buzzer beater. I did the theater test in my head, and I can't lie that I'd almost feel obligated to go into the PTA theater. Sometimes it almost seems like there's nothing he can't do. In the immortal words of Josh Brolin, Moto Panakeku! <laughs> I do love that bit with Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice. The results, Michael. Paul Thomas Anderson over Spike Jones by a fairly wide margin, 74% to 26%. I'm comfortable with that. I am too. I'm hosting a screening at the Music Box in June of There Will Be Blood. You are. A 35 millimeter print, I'll be bound. Nice. So I'll let you, I'll let you look. Will you tout it on the show? Absolutely. Will you turn the entire episode over to it? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> the next matchup, Steven Spielberg versus Christopher Nolan. Lauren Bycroft 
Says, my initial hunch would be that this pairing would be tough. Nolan's films probably make me think more than Spielberg's. I defend them more passionately because they're typically more risky and divisive, which is an exciting quality in a filmmaker. And yet, I'm going with Spielberg. Film spotting gut check. I walk into a theater and I have to choose between the new Nolan and the new Spielberg. I'm going Spielberg. I'm always hoping for that magic that Spielberg is more capable of creating than any other filmmaker. When I think about the first time I saw Jurassic Park, Jaws, Raiders, or any other number of Spielberg films, it just can't compare to how I felt seeing any of Nolan's great films. Maybe Bridge of Spies seems pretty classic Spielberg to most, but it really blew me away, joining my list of Spielberg favorites. When so many films these days run the risk of being full of sound and fury signifying nothing, seeing a filmmaker work so quietly and deftly is truly a treasure. I'm on that. I'm on. I think that's very well put. Evan Lorenz says, of course I expect the next Steven Spielberg film to be well-made and entertaining, but it takes risk to produce something transcendent, and Spielberg's days of taking risks are sadly behind him. Standing in that imaginary theater lobby, it's easier for me to imagine that a new Christopher Nolan film could be the next memento or the prestige than it is to imagine that the new Spielberg film could be his next Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List. Mm. Kira M. says, I'm shocked that both Adam and Josh went Team Nolan. I'm shocked, too. You did? Yeah, oh, we you did. You potses. <laughs> couple of idiots. <laughs> and hence... And this, Michael, is why you're here. I used to be a huge Nolan fan, but the more blockbusters he does, the more I realize his flaws. Clunky dialogue, incoherent action, and one-dimensional characters. If Nolan was going back to smaller films like The Prestige, Memento, and Insomnia, I'm so Team Nolan. But I worry with Dunkirk, he's making another big, bloated film. This is the movie that's supposed to come out in 2017 about the evacuation of Dunkirk that took place at the beginning of World War II. Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance in that cast. Then there's Spielberg, Kira continues. As Michael Phillips has said many times... The man knows how to move a camera. However, every Spielberg film of late has been predictable, late-era Spielberg. Well-filmed, but not all that memorable. So do I pick ambition with issues or solid workmen stuck in a rut? Hard to say for sure, but I think I'm going Spielberg here. Even if his projects don't excite me like they used to, the man still knows filmmaking craft, and I just worry Nolan won't ever go back to those incredible character-driven films he used to make. V.V. Lordy says, I'm voting for Spielberg only because if I sit through one of his nearly three-hour movies, I'm not praying for it to end by the 80-minute mark, which Nolan has made me do twice. Come on. Yeah, I think that's a little harsh. Also, my defense of Spielberg, it, mm-hmm. you know, this whole news about Indy 5, yeah... I mean, maybe, but... Uh, the BFG, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's no. coming out as well. Right. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just wanted <laughs> to be, be... I wanted to be better than Tintin. I'm with you on that. The results, Christopher Nolan with the win, 57% mm. yeah. to Spielberg's 43%. Uh, uh, hey, hey, you know, they're both pretty good. They are both pretty good. You know? The Elite Eight matchup then. Paul Thomas Anderson versus Christopher Nolan. Sam Van Hallgren, our esteemed producer, forecasts a blowout for Paul Thomas Anderson. I disagree. I think it's going to be much closer. I do think PTA is going to win, and PTA gets my vote. I'm guessing he gets yours as well. he does. Okay, we move on. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Quentin Tarantino versus Ryan Johnson. Kate, what really tipped the scales for me was the realization that, yes, Johnson has Star Wars, which I have no doubt that he'll be able to put a unique spin on. But there's a difference between leaving a few fingerprints on a billion-dollar blockbuster and convincing Harvey Weinstein to convert 100 theaters to 70 millimeter for the first time in 50 years just for the hell of it. Granted, I love The Hateful Eight, but even though it got mixed reception elsewhere, no one else but Tarantino could have done it. Good old Quentin, as divisive as he's become, is one of the few directors left in Hollywood who has the cachet to convince studios to really experiment, whether that's 70 millimeter or dividing kill bill into two or releasing a grindhouse double feature or whatever else he comes up with next a quentin movie is always somehow an event 
one that's nearly impossible to find anywhere else, and I'd hate to lose that. If Ryan lost his director card tomorrow, Star Wars could still move on. If Quentin did, goodbye countless unique cinematic experiences no one else could have given us. I like that, Michael, too, because Kate not only argues persuasively and eloquently, but she kind of counters the prevailing wisdom that even Josh and I kind of spouted when we picked Ryan Johnson ahead of him on this one, which is, well, we know what to expect from Tarantino by this point. He's not really going to surprise us anymore. Yeah, true Kate, Kate disagrees with that. No, I agree she with she that. points out that we're going we're gonna to get unique cinematic experiences. Not much Only lo- he can bring yeah, us. I have, no, I have no great love for The Hateful Eight, but that's actually, that is a very good point. Okay. Very good point. Trevor Wallace. I'm sure there is debate about following through, but hasn't Tarantino always asserted that he will only make 10 films? Even if he were to get out of his current slump of good, not great films, we would only get two more, even without Star Wars. I would pick Ryan for the much more promising future mm. career. Jason Eakin in L.A. Trevor said it. Ryan Johnson has my vote, not because he's a better filmmaker than Tarantino and not even because I think he will become a better filmmaker than QT. He's getting my vote because his films are strong. He's continuing to grow as a filmmaker and because QT is out after two more films. I love, Michael, that people have resorted to coming up with technicalities to get through the voting. I'm willing to trade two QT films based on his current stock, which is a bit lower than it used to be, for 10 Ryan Johnson films. Mm. I think QT's best is behind him, and Johnson's best is ahead of him. And Scott says it succinctly. I'm only going for Tarantino because I'm still upset that Johnson beat out Wong Kar Wai. He did in round one of Mm. Film Spotting Madness. The results then, sorry, upstart Ryan Johnson, even with Star Wars behind him, he lost 45% to Tarantino's 55%. Tight, but, you know, there yeah. you go. Where would you have voted, Michael? I, uh, mm. Boy, that, you know, that is a toughie. It is, isn't I it? Think, I think, John, you know, Johnson's a little, uh, you know, coming off very good work and 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 such promise for the future, but uh, it's, it's hard to say. But yeah. I've, been, I've been personally cooler on Tarantino's more recent stuff, so, you know, that, that's a toughie. I'm just glad that I don't believe in this whole March Madness thing. <laughs> Uh, March is my birthday month, and I, uh-huh. I like to focus on that. <laughs> Fair enough. Matchup number four, Martin Scorsese versus Jeff Nichols. Aaron Teachman in D.C. says, It helps tremendously that this tournament is mostly about future output. I absolutely appreciate the great work that Scorsese has done during his illustrious career, but the only movie I am currently dying to see in theaters is Midnight Special. I think that Shotgun Stories and Mud are special movies about family and the dangerous places we go trying to find or keep that sense of family. Take Shelter takes those themes to the next level. It is riveting, deeply personal drama at its absolute finest. I love Jeff Nichols' voice, and I want to go wherever he wants to take me. Hard to argue with that. Manuel says, Nichols only looks good because there's so few unique voices emerging from the new pack of American filmmakers. For those of you voting on Nichols' future potential, I say this, Mean Streets. Alice doesn't live here anymore, and Taxi Driver. At the same point in his career as Nichols is now, Scorsese had already made a masterpiece and had established himself as a unique voice in cinema. If this contest were held in the mid-70s and it was Hitchcock in the elder statesman slot and Marty in the up-and-coming category, no one would have to be voting for Scorsese based solely on his potential. If I were in a theater and had to choose between Scorsese's latest, Silence, or Nichols' Midnight Special, I'd take Silence. Call me when Nichols has a true masterpiece under his belt. Mm-hmm. Again, very eloquently stated, mm-hmm. Manuel has a point, right. but I did do that test, and that's where I came up with Nichols. I voted Nichols only because if I was walking into that theater, I'm more curious about Midnight Special than Silence. Well, Adam, if you don't agree with Manuel's opinion, I, I would just delete that part of the broadcast. <laughs> just take it out. Because it's just that stupid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael. Actually, I agree with it. You do? I do. I do. I would go Scorsese personally. Yeah, and that is... 
how listeners voted. So don't worry, Michael. Not everyone listening to the show is as dumb as <laughs> me and Josh okay. because 61% voted for Martin Scorsese over Jeff Nichols. He only had 39%. That means the round three matchup is, oh my, Quentin Tarantino versus Martin Scorsese. Sam's forecast for that one is a tie. <laughs> it uh, might come out a dead split at 50 I would say the forecast is blood all over the walls. No right? kidding. I mean, that's... No kidding. Matchup number five, we have... Guillermo del Toro v. Wes Anderson. Lauren, Lauren Bycroft says, great googly mooglies. This is tough. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was thinking that same thing. Uh-huh. Actually. Two filmmakers with such unique styles. I adore them both. I really do, but I think I have to go with del Toro. Anderson's films are among my favorites, but I think you could argue they're not exactly surprising, whether he's telling the story of a family, two young kids running off together, or an existential oceanographer all of his stories feel like pieces of a puzzle that fit together to form one bigger picture. Wait, am I starting to convince myself to vote for Anderson? Damn, no. I'm sticking with Del Toro. I know that many argue his films have diminishing returns, but for better or worse, I'm more surprised by Del Toro, a little girl discovering a nightmarish, dangerous fantasy world, gothic melodrama and romance, a devil fighting on behalf of humanity, giant robots, monsters fighting. There you Del, go. Del Toro is maybe fatalistically true to himself in the stories he wants to tell, and I just can't stop loving him for it. Long may he reign. <laughs> All right, Lauren. Kira M., I think she's back with more of the great visual stylist matchup, eh? I'll admit it. I'm a massive Del Toro fangirl, so yeah, this is going to be unfair, but I'm going there despite the problems. Del Toro's last three projects, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, and the TV show The Strain, have all been disappointments in one way or another. And then there's Wes Anderson, a filmmaker I once dismissed as a visual one-trick pony, but is now maturing into a phenomenal director who uses visuals to enhance the mature storytelling and deep emotional characters so well. So yeah, I'm going heart over head here. I'm sure Anderson will win and probably should, but to paraphrase the new Bruce Wayne... If there's even a 1% chance that Del Toro will make a film as phenomenal as The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, then we have to take it as an absolute certainty that he should win. That's actually a better line of dialogue than I, than I certainly heard in Batman vs. Superman. Todd Stevens says, of all the matchups in this round, this is the one where I'd most like to see one filmmaker direct a screenplay written by the other filmmaker, if only for my own amusement. I now, like that. Uh, come on. I mean, Todd wins Film Spotting Madness this week. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Okay, the results. Del Toro, despite the impassioned pleas of Lauren and Kira, only got 21% of the vote. Not a surprise. Wes Anderson running away with it with 79%. Yeah, Do you yeah, concur? Yeah. Well, especially coming off the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think may be that or Rushmore, his greatest film. Ah, Gosh, couldn't disagree with you more there. But what? What? I what? agree with you overall. Oh, I went Anderson in this one. So this is uh, actually your next broadcast, Adam. It's going to be just like Batman vs. Superman. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an apology for the totally. previous opinion. Yep. Yeah. That's it. I'm setting the example. And what I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed forever. This was the toughest one for me, Michael, and I think many listeners. Number six. David Fincher versus Richard Linklater. And here we are with great comments from Kira again. Kira M. Aesthetics or drama? It's so hard to say, but I guess I just have to go... Fincher, for one, compared Gone Girl to Panic Room. Fincher could have easily been the nauseating, over-the-top style monster he was in Panic Room, but with Gone Girl, he showed immense restraint, 
knowing exactly the right punches to pull. Second, Fincher has always pushed digital cinema to be more cinematic and is the best digital director working. As much as I like Linklater, I think he's partly responsible for the quagmire of visually dead indie dramedies that define every damn film festival and VOD option these days. I think we need a Fincher to show us we don't have to sacrifice visual quality in the digital revolution and his newfound maturity makes me think his magnum opus is right around the corner. And this is the guy who already made Zodiac. Yeah, well, there you go. While this means a possible Jesse Celine future film sinks with the USS Linklater, I just think Fincher is the director we need right now, or the one we deserve. I can never remember. Now you're you're mixing your madness matchups, Kira. Chris Massa, who gave us the Massa Minute last week, he was our Kira the star of Film Spotting Madness last week, Michael. He says, if my memory is correct, Linklater didn't announce that he was making Boyhood until it was almost done. The same thing with Before Sunset, which came out of nowhere and nobody knew he was making. My point is, who knows what Linklater's working on in secret? Who knows what great movies we'll never see if he gets eliminated? David Fincher's next movie will undoubtedly be gripping and stylish, but Linklater's has the potential to redefine what movies can do again. No competition. Eddie Averill says, I was ranking both of these filmographies on Letterboxd the other day and figured that if my eighth favorite film of one of these directors was a perfect adaptation of an all-time favorite novel of mine made with some of the most stunning visuals of its year, that would be my guy. Fincher? No, it's Linklater's A Scanner Darkly, and for that I'll take Ricky Link over just about anybody. Ricky Ricky Link. Link. Ricky, I didn't know the. I can't imagine Richard Linklater is like a Scorsese mob character. No, <laughs> and with that, he's probably stopped listening to the show. Our apologies, Rick. The results, our apologies for this as well. Linklater, forty-two percent. Fincher, though, fifty-eight percent. Mm. This was my hardest one, and I voted Fincher as I explained last week. I had no explanation. It was just my gut. I love Linklater's films. I adore five to seven of them. Yeah, adore them, Michael. Yep. But somehow, I'm walking into the theater. I'm going with the Fincher movie. Yeah, I know. It's tough. It's just it's it's an unfair match. It's yep. uh, the whole the whole process is sadistic. You've set up here. I don't, uh, <laughs> the round three matchup then: Wes Anderson versus David Fincher. Mm-hmm. At least this is now an easy one for me. It's David Fincher, no question. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. But you don't agree with that. Uh. There's no, no way you're taking no, Fincher over Anderson. I prefer Anderson. Anderson. Okay. Yep, yep. You and Josh both. Matchup number seven, the Cohn brothers versus Steve McQueen. Chris Bentley Smith says, not even a contest, McQueen all the way. Two near masterpieces followed by the best film of this decade, plus the prospect of more films with film spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender. <laughs> I'm always intrigued by what the Cones will do next, but I don't feel a connection with many of their revered films, which a lot of people do. So under the patented test, I walk into the cinema and I'll be intrigued by what the Cones are to offer up. But I've absolutely got to see McQueen's next picture, Fastbender or no Fastbender. Jesse Rivers says, The two of you seem to think this was a foregone conclusion for the Coens, but for me, this is a true Sophie's choice. If the Coens announced today that they were no longer making films, while I'd certainly be disappointed, I take solace in the fact that we have over 30 years worth of material to enjoy. If Steve McQueen said he was done with cinema, I'd be devastated and would wonder for the rest of my days just how much better he could have been. McQueen gets my vote, even though I'm sure he won't make the next round. Nick M. closes us out. The mental gymnastics the earlier commenters have to embark on to convince themselves not to vote for the Cone brothers is ludicrous. I guess you get cred for being contrarian, but really, the decision is simple. The Cones have shown no signs of slowing down or dropping off, and I think Hail Caesar especially is a film that benefits from multiple viewings. I'm not trying to slag off McQueen, whose own films are masterful, but I will always line up at the theater to see a new Cone Brothers flick. Sorry, Jesse. 
Sorry, Chris. This one was a foregone conclusion. The most lopsided contest of the second round, the Cone Brothers 85% to Steve McQueen's 15%. And I'll be totally honest, I'm a little surprised they even got 15%. Really? Just, yeah. Just knowing the love out there for the Cone Brothers. Yeah. And I think when you consider it that way, you do have to, even even people who are more ambivalent about the Cones sort of place in the Pantheon, you have to admit that they've made a much wider variety tonally of films than most people give them credit for. Absolutely. You, you know, so, you know, I'm not surprised either. Well, speaking of having all sorts of tones in their filmographies, Steven Soderbergh versus Werner Herzog, the final matchup of our Sweet 16. Anmin Lee wrote in, after pacing around my apartment at least 100 times. See, this is what I love about Film Spotting Madness, Michael. <laughs> you rip on us, but we give our listeners fits. So... They must be having fun. A hundred right? times around his apartment, I think, is just long enough for you know a typical film spotting podcast. So that's good. <laughs> well played. I finally brought myself to vote for Werner Herzog. Steven Soderbergh is an artist whose virtuosity was developed through a steadfast work ethic and renewed vigor from failures. Even though he's a veteran, he's still constantly learning. He's a Swiss Army knife of a filmmaker, having mastered directing, shooting, and editing. And as I'm writing this, I'm kicking myself for not voting for him. But I'm reminded of how singular and unique Herzog's worldview is, and for that reason alone. My vote goes to the man whose films cannot be compared to any other directors. Jason Eakin disagrees, I think. This is a trick question, right? He says, how did Soderbergh even get into this tournament? He's retired. And even if he doubles back on it and makes another film, don't you just get the feeling he's moved past movies in his heart? Seems like in this tourney, Tarantino and Soderbergh are getting through solely on reputation, since between them they have committed to only two more movies ever. That doesn't provide much in the way of future work. To follow the analogy Adam and Josh have mentioned on the show, imagine you walk into a movie theater and you can see a movie by Herzog or a movie by Soderbergh. You choose Soderbergh, walk into the theater, take your seat, and then you wait until the end of time because he isn't making movies anymore. Technicalities. (laughs) How did he How did he get the movie theater change to go for that? I, I know. Now, you don't ever get to see a movie ever again unless Soderbergh changes his mind and makes something new. Way to go. Wow, okay. that is that is some okay, sustained Jason. sarcasm. Fair enough. But as we suggested last week, Sam, Josh, myself, we're just not buying the Soderbergh I'm done making yeah, films. Yeah, we're no. not buying it. I'm not either. And clearly we're not because we put him in Film Spotting Madness. So this was the closest race by far, hmm. and it was the rare come-from-behind victory because Herzog was in the lead. He had a fairly sizable lead. It was certainly in the higher 50s over Soderbergh, and yet at the end, somehow, the Soderbergh supporters came through. 51% to 49%, but really only about 50, 60 votes separating them, Michael. I, I think that as Soderbergh himself would say, this is this is a bracket about hope. It was about hope. <laughs> That's it. And if these things matter to you, he was our overall 11th seed, Soderbergh was. So he is the remaining Cinderella. He's the lowest seed in Film Spotting Madness who is still alive in the Elite Eight. Wow. And to give the selection committee, being mainly myself and Sam, a little bit of credit, we rated these, of course, based on how we thought the results would go. Right. Judging what we think the perception of film spotting listeners is with some of our perception of these filmmakers and the Elite Eight are from those top 11 seeds. Huh. The only three we didn't get right. Spielberg was a top tenner, got eliminated. Linklater was in the top 10, got eliminated. We had Terrence Malick actually overall as the number six seed. Out of the 32, he lost to Herzog in round one. Wow. So otherwise though, we did pretty well. What do you want? It's ageism, obviously. But, uh, you know, what do you want? (laughs) That's it. So round three, the matchup is the final Elite Eight, the Coen brothers versus Steven Soderbergh. And as much as I love Steven Soderbergh, this is a very easy one for me. It's the Coen brothers. Yeah. 
You're with me, Michael? Uh, yes. And the forecast for this one is enjoy your retirement, Stephen. Yes. <laughs> you can play Film Spotting Madness now at filmspotting.net. That's where you vote, see all the matchups, and you can link to the bracket if you prefer to view it in that form. It is, of course, again, not too late to introduce your non-film spotting friends to the show. They don't have to listen to all four hours they of our podcast. They can be haters, haters. They could hate us, but they'll still enjoy Film Spotting Madness even as it makes them take hundreds of laps around their house and <laughs> mutter phrases like evil to themselves. Go ahead and invite them to take part in the madness. It's all at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment in the polls, and we hope you do, please let us know not only your name, but where you're listening from. And a final reminder to vote early in these polls. As soon as you hear this, please go over, go to filmspotting.net. We sometimes tape early in the week, and we don't want those polls to be closed, Michael. Now, how difficult is it to hack in and mess around with the results to date? Well, Can we, you... we did have the infamous Robert Pattinson situation a few years ago with the Golden Brick vote, Cosmopolis, among the Golden Brick contenders. This was before we put on the criterion that it had to be a new or emerging filmmaker. Obviously, huh. Cronenberg, not new or emerging, but all of the Twilight fans came out for Robert yeah. Pattinson. And they didn't probably cheat, but... They somehow ran up the voting for Pattinson. We had you know, to that's funny. That's my favorite. Some steps. That's my favorite Henry James novel, The Pattinson Situation. It's a I would love to it's see a, that. It's a very sensitive portrait. Of Maybe them, yeah. the the Coen Brothers could direct that movie, <laughs> Michael. It sounds like it would be fantastic. And speaking of fantastic, Michael, that's what you were on this episode. Thank you for playing oh, along with the silliness no, of film kind. spotting madness. No, 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 you're too kind. Yeah, classing no. up the joint as usual. Now you get to you get to leave. I get to leave yeah. and uh, undermine the show in my own way from a distance, yeah. I look forward to it as always. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Or is it that time Clark and Lois went to Niagara Falls for their honeymoon? When we come back, a couple of special guests join me for the film spotting top five Batman Superman movie moments. Stay with us. Now when you wake up, nice falling, someone is by your side. Pull it together, darling, you're not alone. But when you break up, sky's falling, no one is on your side. Spoon to the laundry, darling, you're all alone. And when you wake up, another sunrise, another break up, the ship is capsized. And when you wake up, another sunrise, another break up. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello, boys and girls. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. And on our latest episode, the secret word is peewee. As in Herman, star of our listener's choice review, peewee's ah! big holiday. And inspired by Pee-wee's ah! Big Holiday, we'll also be recommending some other great road trip movies you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, find us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This is Martin McDonough, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Gosh, Batman. Nobility of the almost human porpoise. 
true. Robin. It was noble of that animal to hurl himself into the path of that final torpedo. He gave his life for ours. Holy Deus Ex Machina, Batman. This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar, Adam West, and Burt Ward in Batman the Movie from 1966. Sadly, no almost human porpoise was available to fill in during Josh Larson's absence this week, so I've invited two super friends in for this week's top five Batman, Superman, movie moments. First up, Chris Klemek. He's an NPR film critic. He's an occasional panelist on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and occasional film spotting guest host in Top 5 Hired Gun. You know him and love him from our Top 5 James Bond tropes last November. He also shares initials and a face with Clark Kent. How are you doing, Chris? Great, Scott, Adam. Just to tell everyone my secret. I'm doing well. Thank you. Indeed, I'm spoiling your secret identity. Chris, playing the role of Superman, obviously that means Glenn Weldon is our Batman. He's a regular panelist on Pop Culture Happy Hour. He's the author of 2013 Superman, the unauthorized biography, and the just-released The Cape Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Glenn, you don't look like any incarnation of Bruce Wayne I'm familiar with, but the one time we hung out together and had a few beers at that bar in D.C., you were wearing a cowl, which seemed a little odd. Yeah, I just uh, it's casual. It's for after six. I just, you know, <laughs> like to try it on. Nice. Well, thank you both for being here, and thank you for doing what will inevitably be the heavy lifting for this top five. I am far from the expert, and that's where you guys come in. So I guess, Chris, we'll start with you, and I want your number five, and I want to know if you, like Josh and I are want to do from time to time, if you had any guiding principles that helped you form this list. I'm, I'm a man of principle, Adam, starting with no treadmills ever. But for this list, um, I chose to, to read top five Superman Batman movie moments as uh, not simply moments from any film starring one of those characters, but moments about those characters. So my scenes had to have either Superman or Batman in it and had to reveal something inherent to the character. That's why the, the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy is maybe underrepresented here as much as I love those films. They feature an unusually well-developed supporting cast. You know, Jim Gordon is a real character in those movies. Alfred the Butler is a real character in those movies. So um, neither of those guys are Batman or Superman, so they're, they're here, but not, not as prevalent as my, my love of those Nolan movies might hint at. Got it. Your number five. My number five is from Tim Burton's Batman Returns, his second and final Batman movie. This is near the conclusion of the film when Max Schreck, played by Christopher Walken, has, has been uncovered as the, the, the big bad here, and his victim, Selina Kyle, who has become Catwoman, is confronting him. And Batman arrives and tries to talk her down, persuade her to let them take Shrek to the police rather than kill him. This speaks to Batman's quest for for justice, not vengeance. Uh, in most representations of the character, as I'm sure we'll discuss further, he does not use lethal force. You know, this movie is uh, really more of a Tim Burton movie with Batman running around in it than, than a, a Batman movie in a lot of ways. But uh, I, I like that it, it builds this symmetry between Catwoman and Batman and suggests that they w- understand one another in a way. And, and I love this moment where Bruce Wayne actually doesn't just remove his cowl, but tears it off, you know, suggesting a, a finality. Selena. Don't you see? We're the same. Selena. 
but it's a powerful moment. And then Shrek has a, a, this, this great tag on it where he says, Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed like Batman? <laughs> I think is how most people would react to, uh, you know, a person who is, who is famous like Bruce Wayne yeah. being unmasked as, as some figure of mystery. It's a great pick. And I like the fact that you went with Batman Returns, which, you know, you may remember from our Sacred Cow discussion of Batman 89. I hadn't seen that since it originally came out. I certainly have not seen Batman Returns either since it came out originally in theaters. I think you just did rewatch it probably in prep for this list. Did it hold up? And I guess, did it hold up to what you originally thought of it? Well, I, I certainly disliked it when I was a teenager and it, it came out for, you know, because it, it seemed like it was just Burton doing what he wanted to do. And, you know, in order to get $70 million, he had to put, put Batman in it somewhere. That's what makes me appreciate it so much now. It is a deeply weird film, but feels very personal in a way that none of the, the Marvel movies, for example, do, even though I, I like a lot of those. Um, I didn't watch the entire thing again, but I certainly went back to that scene. Every time I revisit Batman Returns, I seem to appreciate it more. Hmm. Glenn Weldon, you are up next. You're number five. Yeah, I wish I had some kind of grand overarching scheme. I do not. Just stuff I like. Stuff that I actually remember from uh, all these films, because I have watched them. I haven't watched them all Recently, but uh, certainly they, they form a pretty large part of my psyche. And my number five is the moment from the uh, animated feature Mask of the Phantasm when Bruce dons the bat suit for the very first time. Now, this is just my way of sneaking the animated series in here, and I'm doing it on a technicality. Uh, this animated feature was released in theaters very briefly and did very poorly. But the thing that I, I talk about in the book a lot is that whenever you take this character from the comics into, say, an action movie, you have to change them because you have to give uh, comic book characters, you have to give them something they don't get in the comics, which is an ending. You have to take them through a narrative arc. You have to, it's exactly what Chris was saying, that moment in Batman Returns when he rips off the cowl is not a thing you would do. It's not Batman. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a violation of the basic tenet of superherodom. But to fit him into a three-act structure, you have to do it. And that always pulls me out of these characters a little bit. But mm. once you get the animated series, the animated series is as close as we are ever going to get to the Batman of the comics, basically uh, given any kind of life, uh, any kind of animation life. Because the format of that series apes the format of a comic book very easily. So even in this particular animated feature, they're still doing this, this thing where they're not really changing him, but they're showing a moment in his life when he could have made a different decision. It's mostly, well, there's a lot of flashback here, and it's about a, a romance he had as he was deciding how to become Batman. So yes, that means this is the origin still yet again. But mm. mercifully, there's no Martha and Thomas Wayne get killed yet again. No pearls were harmed in the making of this particular <laughs> origin story. Animated or otherwise animated or otherwise. Instead, we focus on what the uh, comic book Batman Year One focuses on, which is how he decides to go about what he does using the whole bat getup. Mm. He starts off trying to attack criminals just with a ski mask, but he doesn't scare them enough. So there is a scene, and it is a very, very brief scene, in which he dons the bat suit for the first time. We see him put on the mask, and then he turns to face Alfred. And very importantly, we see the reaction on Alfred's face. We do not see him. Uh, we won't see him in the full getup until a little bit later. But the reaction on Alfred's face, who has known this guy all his life, is one of shock and, tellingly, I think, a bit of dismay. God. And... 
then we see something that is hugely important, I think. We see a close-up of the cowl's slits, the eyes, the, the white eyes. We see them narrow. Now, that recalls the beginning of every episode of the animated series. That's the moment when uh, a thing that we nerds who have been reading these comics all our lives, we've kind of envisioned, but we've never seen, because it happens between the gutters of a comic book page. Here we see it. We see that intentionality. We see the force of his will focused as his eyes narrow, and it is just an awesome scene. Hmm. I will have to take your word for it, as I'm not familiar with it, and that's why you're on this show, Glenn, to give us those deeper cuts. So there you go. It sounds fascinating. I'm going to do something I never do during these top fives, which is be brief. You guys are the stars of this segment, and I certainly don't have the insights that you guys have to share. And the reality is, if I was truly doing this top five, I would just pick five moments from Superman the movie, the original. I'd pick all five of them from that film because that's the one that probably looms largest for me. In my memory growing up, I watched that movie obsessively, but I did try to be a little bit more varied with my picks, have a little bit of diversity and spread it out and not just go with Superman. And my number five is actually the sequence from Batman 89, Tim Burton's, where he... Michael Keaton is over at Vicki Vale's house, Kim Basinger, and the Joker shows up. And we get that great opening line where Keaton says to the Joker, I know who you are. Let me tell you about this guy I know, Jack. Mean kid, bad seed, hurt people. I like him already. <laughs> yeah, you know, the problem was he got sloppy, you know, crazy. He started to lose it. He had a head full of bad wiring, I guess. Couldn't keep it straight up here. He was the kind of guy who couldn't hear the train till it was two feet from him. Hmm. You know what happened to this guy, Jack? Made mistakes. And then he had his lights out. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I like the scene on its face because I like the bit of irony where you have Michael Keaton saying, I know who you are, but then he proceeds to tell this story about, let me tell you about a guy I know. He's being more general. He doesn't literally mean I know who you are It quite in that way. And then when he hears later the dance with the devil, when he says that line and he says, what? Bruce Wayne says, what? He then knows, well, actually, I really do truly know who you are. The real reason I'm picking it, though, guys, is just because it's the most Keaton moment in that movie where we finally get him with the poker saying, let's get nuts. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. It just it's something that doesn't really fit. I'm not even sure that Keaton completely pulls it off, but it's just such a Michael Keaton moment that you could see him doing in any one of his other great roles from the 80s and I loved Michael Keaton in the 80s he was he was a great star and then he brought that uh, same kind of just energy manic energy to that part and you really get it in that scene now it's a little bit ridiculous that we get the bullet and he manages to survive with his little bulletproof piece of metal somehow but you know that's that's kind of the logic that uh, you get throughout that entire movie from Tim Burton so I don't know how brief I was there guys but that's my pick and 
I'm sticking with it. All right, let me jump in there, Adam, because that scene that you talk about is what's kind of a late addition to the script. It wasn't even technically scripted. It was kind of this exercise that the director kind of took uh, Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson aside and said, we need to do something. Jack Nicholson said he didn't have enough to do. Michael Keaton wanted something a little bit chewier. So that scene, to me, has an acting class exercise feel to mm. it. It's, it's, it's that makes less, sense. It's less finished. It's less... Uh, it's it's showier in all the um, all the ways that you mentioned, and you can kind of tell. I think it stops the film dead in its tracks. Yeah, but it does something very odd, and it does give you these. We haven't seen these two together without the masks. That's right. Them. Yep. All right. Your number four, Chris. Well, one of among my many jobs, Adam, is I am the court appointed attorney for Zack Snyder's Man of Steel mm. from 2013. So I'm going to go with uh, a brief scene from that movie that was, uh, I'm sure is in the trailer. It may be the only time we actually see Henry Cavill's Superman speak in the trailer. I, I don't really remember. But in the film, this is when Superman has surrendered to the authorities and allowed the army to put handcuffs on him, just uh, as he explains to, to Lois Lane. So they'll, they'll feel more confident, even though the handcuffs are, are clearly futile. So they're sitting across the table in an interrogation from, room from one another with various military officials behind a, you know, a two-way mirror. And, uh, she asks him, what's the S stand for? And he kind of fixes her with that, uh, those clear blue eyes and says, It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well, here it's an S. It is a perfect line reading. It is the only hint of the warmer, friendlier, more inspiring Superman movie that I wanted this to be. It's the only moment where there is a hint of actual romantic chemistry between Henry Cavill and Amy Adams. I like like 51% of this movie, and I strongly dislike the other 49. But this is a scene that would have survived intact in the, the film that I wish Man of Steel was. So mm. I had to give it some love here at number four. No, that's uh, that's a really good pick and kind of a cool coda to that scene, obviously, where he just nonchalantly takes the cuffs off and makes the military people look a little bit silly behind right. the glass there. So I like that I scene. I can't even sustain it for one scene, but I but I love that moment. Yeah. Indeed. All right. Glenn, you're number four. My number four is the junkyard fight from Superman 3. Yes, the Superman 3 makes an appearance in my top five. I'm as surprised as anyone. But uh, everything about Superman 3 is schlocky, I would say agreeably so. And I have talked to a number of people that, surprisingly, uh, who are younger than me, for whom the final scene, the confrontation with the uh, evil computer, in which that evil computer takes over a woman's body is very traumatic and it's very <laughs> scary to them but because uh, it's something that they remember from their childhood but this junkyard fight scene between a good Clark Kent and an evil Superman and you can tell he's evil because he's got a five o'clock shadow and he drinks whiskey and he blows out the Olympic torch that scene and you don't need to know why it happened synthetic kryptonite yada 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 doesn't matter that scene is so quintessentially Silver Age comic book goodness and evilness, respectively, hmm. that it just captures something so pure. I can see these panels as drawn by uh, Kurt Swan, Superman's one of my favorite Superman artists. It, it just is has a simple, primal power, agreeably schlocky as it is, agreeably uh, silly and bad props akimbo. It doesn't matter. I still love it. Yeah. I think even as a younger man still at that point, I recognize that movie was not as good as Superman the movie or Superman 2, but I still really enjoyed it. And I don't know what that says about me, Glenn. No, no, no. It just means that uh, Richard Pryor, even bad Richard Pryor, is still Richard Pryor. 
<laughs> All right. My number four, I can't believe I'm doing this, Chris. You'll appreciate this. I'm no defender of Man of Steel. I said earlier in the show with Michael that I actually think Batman versus Superman might be slightly, slightly better than Man of Steel. And oh, yet, absurd, Adam. Absurd. And yet, that's what Michael said. And yet, I am going with a scene from Man of Steel for my number four. And it's the flashback that an unconscious floating in the water Superman Henry Cavill is having. And he's thinking back to the time when he was a young schoolboy, maybe six to eight years old, maybe even a little bit younger, kind of kindergarten, first grade. And he is having a really tough time in school. Everything about that scene, it ending with Diane Lane coming and the conversation that the mother and son have where he says, the world's too big, mom. And she explains, well, just make it small. That's a nice little touching moment. I don't know why all the school kids from the classroom have to be out there as well, like adding to his uh, traumatic moment. But it's, it's a really touching little moment. Before that, though, is really what I love about the scene. The fact that we got shades of that in the original Superman where, yeah, okay, he gets picked on a little bit, and boy, it's tough having these special powers. He doesn't get to go hang out with the cool kids and and has to act out a little bit. But it's nothing like the real kind of terror we see, what what Zack Snyder perceives that that life would have been like for a young Clark Kent and watching that that's that's really kind of terrifying watching him as he perceives the world where he hears the sounds in an amplified way that is very hard for him to deal with he sees the teacher he sees through her of course she's the sees the skeleton it's a very imposing kind of sequence and there was something about that that I appreciated I think mainly because again I it was something I had never really seen in one of these films before it was a new take on the young life of Superman that that does make sense in terms of how he later perceives the world and that he's got a little grimmer view of it. So the world's too big is my number four. I like that scene too, Adam. I'm going to pump up my evaluation of Man of Steel to 52%. 52% Fair enough. Fresh. <laughs> number three for you, Chris. All right. Well, I swear I didn't pick this one just so we could revisit our old uh, saw over what is or is not a reboot. But the other, I think, underappreciated, um, not nearly as, as reviled as Man of Steel is, uh, Superman film from the 21st century is Brian Singer's Superman Returns from 2006. This is uh, maybe it's a rewind quill in the sense that it sort of pretends that Superman 3 and 4 never happened and picks up the story. I think it's supposed to be five years after Superman 2 or thereabouts. I believe they specify that in the film. This is very much a love letter to the first Richard Donner Superman from 78. Superman has been away from Earth for some long period, seeking remnants of Krypton or something. He is reintroduced to the world in this fantastic action sequence, probably the most elaborate one that we've ever seen that does not involve destroying Metropolis in a Superman film, where the space shuttle or some similar space vehicle is being piggybacked on the back of a passenger jet carrying uh, coterie of journalists. Lois Lane is uh, among them. The rockets fire too soon, endangering both vehicles. So Superman shows up to first physically separate the two, the, the spacecraft from the airplane and, and sees the, the space shuttle, make it safely into space, then looks down to see that the passenger jet is, is flaming and disintegrating and falling to Earth. 
beneath him. You know, this is the kind of uh, elaborate action sequence that would not have been possible when Richard Donner was making his Superman movie in the 70s. Obviously, it is very heavily reliant on CGI. But the, the uncanny valley thing, when you see a, a human figure rendered in CGI, doesn't really kick in here because it's so stylized. It kind of evokes the look of the, the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons of the 1940s. So even though it doesn't look quite photorealistic, it still looks really cool. There is a brief homage to 2001, where uh, as the, the plane that Lois is in becomes weightless briefly, her, her pen sort of floats yeah. out of her shirt pocket and she reaches for it. And then... One of the things that I love about this sequence is um, it showcases some of Superman's weirder powers. He gets to use super breath, among other things, because he's not just super strong and capable of flight. But my favorite element of it is he keeps trying things to rescue this flaming, disintegrating, falling airplane that don't work. You know, because even though he can do all these things, he's probably not encountered this specific problem before. So Mm -hmm. he tries to, like, grab it by the wing, and the wing snaps off. You know, he's trying various things, really exhausting his uh, reserve of ideas, not his powers, to finally bring this plane to a a gentle halt just above a baseball diamond. So there's a great shot where the, you know, the batter gets a good piece of the pitch and then the, you know, the crowd cheers because he looks like he's going to get a base hit. And then they all look up and see this, this flaming aircraft come down. Yeah. And then the scene has the perfect button where uh, Superman takes the door off the plane, boards it, and then echoes his line from Superman 78. Well, I hope this experience hasn't put any of you off flying. Statistically speaking, it's still the safest way to travel. I love that scene. Yeah, I just saw that scene. I think because Superman Returns has been playing on HBO, it was maybe a week or so ago. I caught that scene and really did enjoy it for all the reasons that you said. And I like what you were saying as well about how it compares to some of the CGI stuff where clearly it needed CGI to be captured. And yet... It doesn't feel like all of the nonsense we get in Man of Steel or that we get in the last 30 or 40 minutes of Batman v Superman. It feels a little bit closer to the kind of naturalistic type stunts and action scenes that we get in the Nolan films. I think the Batman movies from Christopher Nolan. So I agree. It's a really good sequence and a good choice. What about you, Glenn? Well, yeah, I'd pick up on that. I mean, I think uh, what you're picking up on there is that it seems a more nuanced film because it does come at this character with from a more mature place. I'm not saying like adult sexually mature. I'm saying uh, there's a note of melancholy throughout this uh, movie. Well, that, more than a note. Yeah, that is absolutely new to the character, not something we associate with a character. A mm. mournfulness, a lost, something that he's lost. And I think it's interesting. I do think the film struggles because we are told at the beginning that he's gone away and abandoned Earth. And then the movie spends the rest of its running time kind of punishing him for doing a thing that we didn't see him do, a choice we didn't see him make. Hmm. So it feels like it's dumping on him for something that, if you know the character, seems like a thing we would need more explanation of. He wouldn't just go away just because he saw there's a piece of Krypton. He would need more. But I do like that film um, more than a lot of people do. Really? Okay. Your number three. My number three is the is from Batman Begins. It's a purely visual moment. Uh, I like Batman Begins. I like Nolan's films better when they shut up. I do have an issue with some of his dialogue, but it's the bat baptism that happens. At once a Bruce Wayne discovers the Batcave, and the bats swarm around him, and Zimmer's score swells. That is one of the moments that I remember from that trilogy. He's got a storytelling fetish for groundedness and realism 
that can seem dour and, and kind of talky and, and purely expository, but he couches it with this cinematography and especially this Zimmer score that's very downright operatic in tone and swoony. And this moment melds those two things together really nicely. It's something that could happen, but it's given this touch of magic by the way it's shot and by the sound, by the, the score. It's one of the most arresting visuals in the entire trilogy. I would put the moment when Heath Ledger's Joker sticks his head out of the police window like a dog as he's driving. That might be the other one, but that's the moment that I remember from that entire trilogy. Huh. Great stuff, and I'm glad you mentioned as well one that's certainly an honorable mention for me, the one with the Joker and his head out the window in that film. My number three is a choice that I'm not sure if you guys are going to be on board with and find halfway inspired, or you're just going to shame me miserably for the rest of this segment. Maybe a little bit of both. I'm going to share my pick via this soliloquy. Darkness. No parents. Continued darkness. The opposite of light. Black hole. Curtains drawn in the basement. Middle of the night. Blacked out windows. Black suit. Black coffee. Darkness. No parents. Super rich. Kind of makes it better. And scene. That, of course, from the Lego movie. Not a Batman or Superman movie, but you could argue it is. Batman certainly a major character in that film voiced by Will Arnett. That is self-portrait, his original composition. And I just think it so neatly, so hilariously punctures the self-seriousness of Batman. And I think Arnett and his voice work is brilliant. So it's my number three, guys. Yeah, if I thought about it, that would be my number one. That's a perfect choice. <laughs> yeah, the, the fact that it. they rolled out the trailer for the Lego Batman movie the same weekend that Batman v Superman came out, it, it kind of seems like a, an insurance policy, doesn't it? Maybe. Like they, <laughs> they, they know what they're sitting on. Yeah. That brings us to your top two choices, Chris. All right. Well, uh, it was really tough to try to pick a scene to represent the whole Nolan trilogy, and uh, where I landed kind of surprised even me. Now, in this retcon of the story, and um, I'll, I'll preface this by recommending both of Glenn's books, his Superman book and his Batman book, where you will get a, a nuanced and, and lengthy critique of, of the ways in which each film incarnation of Batman or Superman is separately heretical. <laughs> nuanced but, uh, and lengthy. That might be the best backhanded compliment ever, Glenn. <laughs> Well, I, I, I had the honor of proofreading his, uh, his Batman book, and I then chose to listen to it again on audio to have him read it to me in wow. his own voice. So that's, if that's not an endorsement or a comment on my own sanity, I, I don't know. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's an endorsement. Um, no, but so in, this, in Nolan and David Goyer's retcon of, of the Batman myth, it's actually a, a Batman villain who sort of uh, plants the seed that, you know, he doesn't set Bruce Wayne on this crusade, but not only is, is it... Uh, well, in the audiobook, Glenn corrects Liam Neeson's pronunciation of his name, Raish Al Ghul. Glenn, can you? Yeah, I mean, they, in the in the live action films, they say Raz. In the animated series, they say Raish. My heart's with the animated series. Okay, so Raish Al Ghul is played by by Liam Neeson. He is the leader of the League of Shadows. Who, in this version of the story, will provide Bruce Wayne with his ninja training, but also in the scene that I'm picking, the very idea of using the tools of theatricality and a frightening costume. He hasn't arrived at specifically using a bat image yet, but you know, a theatrical approach to make him appear to be more than a man. When he comes to him in his cell and in uh, whatever unspecified country it is where uh, Bruce has been imprisoned kind of on purpose so he can fight a lot of bad guys and, and toughen himself up. And then Raish comes into his cell and uh, says, you know, what are you doing? You're a rich kid. You could only be here if you, if you chose to be here. 
and says you, you can make yourself more than a man, and he asks what that is. Legend, Mr. Wayne. Now, there was uh, one critic who, who wrote that the film's dialogue, quote, could have been markedly improved had Nolan simply instituted a moratorium on abstract nouns. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who was that, Glenn? That, w- that would be me, Chris. Oh, right, right. Okay, well, I chose this scene to stand in for the entire Nolan trilogy because I feel like this kind of sets up what becomes the climax of, of The Dark Knight, where in order to propagate a legend, Bruce agrees to take the blame for Harvey Dent's crime so that the people of Gotham can continue to believe in the, the unsullied reputation and, and goodness that they think Harvey represents. And, of course, that becomes the, you know, the tragedy that, that feeds into the, the third film, the climax, but um, yeah, legend, Mr. Wayne. I feel like like the the seeds of every place that this telling of the the Batman myth goes start right there, like maybe twenty minutes into Batman Begins. Hmm. So that's my number two. Good stuff, Glenn. I fear you, I fear you've made a good point there, Chris. But uh, ultimately, my anger outweighs my fear. <laughs> <laughs> what about your number two, Glenn? This is a lengthy sequence. Uh, it's not really a montage, but it is from Superman the movie. It's basically Superman's first night on the town his first appearance, the stuff he does. It comes almost an hour into this movie. This is the moment we finally get to the fireworks factory. We've had the austere and empty Krypton for a long time. Then we get the green and empty Kansas. Then we get the cold and empty fortress of solitude. And all of that is set up, set up, set up. And now finally, we're in the dark and bustling metropolis. It's teeming with life. And we see something that we haven't, we feel something in this movie that we haven't felt before. Urgency. This city needs him. We see it because Lois Lane is in trouble. She's falling off a building with a helicopter. So it starts with him making a change in front of a uh, troubling character, a pimp character, who says the the immortal (laughs) line, say, Jim... That's, That's a, a bad, bad outfit. outfit. Exactly. <laughs> so there's. I, I thought you were going to say start the world engine. No. <laughs> Activate the world engine. That's nope. The, Better. The yeah. codex. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> so, say Jim, then the helicopter rescue, then rescuing a cat in a tree, then a cat burglar uh, climbing up a building, then uh, some more burglars on a boat for some reason, and finally he ends the evening by saving Air Force One. That whole moment leans heavily into the comedy, which we've haven't really gotten before. Like we, When we introduce the Daily Planet, we get screwball comedy, kind of a very fast patter. But up to then, we've had very sweeping, myth-making, you know, impressive score, impressive landscapes. And now we're finally in the middle of a 70s comedy. It, it has a completely different feel, and it's when the film really takes off. So that's, that's what I'm going with. Time, look up there. I've got you. you. You've got me. Who's got you? <laughs> My number two is going to be from Christopher Nolan as well, but not Batman Begins. I'm going with The Dark Knight, and it's the introduction scene to the Joker when he meets with all the mob bosses and says that we all have to unite, and our goal is to kill the Batman. Of course, this is also the scene where we get his great magic trick with the pencil. I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's... It's gone. 
this one stands out, obviously, because it's our introduction to the Joker. And after all the talk about Heath Ledger and whether or not he'd really be able to inhabit this character, and I know everybody was dissecting the, the trailers, to actually see him on screen as the Joker for the first time was 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 memorable. It was it was kind of breathtaking in a way too because he so inhabited that character and I love that that mixture of insanity and coolness. And right away we get him showing that he means business where someone comes to threaten him and intimidate him physically and he he does that bit with humor. He puts the pencil on the table and then something really gruesome happens where he takes the guy out with a pretty swift move. And then we realize later, too, he's thought of everything. He's totally prepared. This guy who's walking into a room full of bad guys with lots of henchmen around and he doesn't seem at first to be, you look at him as the characters do, they call him a clown. He doesn't seem to be that intimidating himself, but of course he thought of everything, he's prepared, he's got himself wired with bombs, and again, the humor of Ledger and the Joker comes through there where they have that guy who is talking to them sort of via remote on a TV screen, and at one point the Joker just calls him television. That's how he refers to the guy in the television. And when another guy later says, you think you can just steal from us and just walk away? And he says, yeah. And he doesn't say it in a way that is at all a punchline. He just says, yeah, because that's what he believes. And no one is certainly going to change his mind otherwise. So I think just seeing Ledger really for the first time as that character and and really feeling the weight of it and and the grimness of it but also that mixture of humor again like I said I, I think it was it was something certainly something that sticks with me and I think the the fact that all of those those assorted crooks in that room with him they're all coming at him with this this macho swagger yeah. you know which is so utterly irrelevant to the Joker and he's just so bored by it <laughs> so true he does not respond in kind makes him even even scarier in that yeah yeah, you're so right. All right, guys. Number one, your favorite Superman or Batman movie moment. Chris. All right. Well, my number one comes from Superman colon the movie from 1978. It's strange to remember now, knowing where the superhero movie has ended up, that, that Richard Donner's watchword on the, the set of this film was verisimilitude. You know, he thought that this story needed to be treated with a greater degree of maybe realism isn't the word than it had been previously. You know, and now we, we've kind of seen this taken to an extreme in, in Batman versus Superman and other movies where there's no trace of lightness or, or whimsy. But that's really what, what Donner and, and the screenwriter who he brought in to rewrite Mario Puzo and Newman and, you know, the, all the other writers who had been corralled on this thing were going for. My scene is the balcony scene where Superman presents himself to Lois Lane on her suspiciously luxurious, uh, large outdoor balcony of, of her metropolis skyscraper apartment because he suspects that the Daily Planet readers must have some questions about me, Lois. You know, when we think about how creepy this could have seemed, this almost infinitely powerful being is, is showing up at her home. <laughs> um, but there's not a, not a hint of menace. You know, some of that is down to the writing. Some of that is, is down to... Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder's just note-perfect performances in this scene when she invites him to sit down and they have a kind of interview-slash-flirtation session that is just loaded with sexual tension. But, you know, if you're less than 12 years old or something, you might just find this scene kind of boring and talky. You know, nothing about it feels lewd or, or, uh, or inappropriate. It's, it's just fun. And, you know, Lois is, is clearly sort of starstruck being in, in Superman's presence. The way that that comes across in the dialogue is very funny. How big are you? Uh, I mean, how tall are you? <laughs> uh, well, um, 
I assume then that the the rest of your bodily functions are normal. Sorry, beg your pardon. Well, putting it delicately. Mm -hmm. Do you eat? Uh, yes, uh, yes, I do. When I'm hungry. You do. Mm -hmm. Of course you do. <laughs> well, well then, uh, is it true that uh, you can? See through anything. Supposedly, uh, Donner told Mankiewicz, if we get the romance right, then all of the other elements will fall into place. There are a lot of things about Superman 78 that I don't like, and that certainly, you know, I, I found boring or too comedic and stuff, especially when I was a little kid seeing it for the first time. But I think this scene is tonally perfect. This might be my favorite four minutes from any superhero movie ever. It's light, it's fun, and then, of course, it goes right into the can you read my mind sort of weirdo mm -hmm. uh, flight across the, the metropolis skyline recitation slash musical number, whatever it is. But the whole prologue to that, the, the interview on Lois's balcony is just perfect. It's yeah. My number one. It really is so good. And I think it was a listener on Twitter who pointed out this scene too. Is it either the beginning or the end of the scene? I haven't watched it in a while where we get kind of that great trick shot where like Superman exits, but then Clark shows up or vice versa. Yeah. That's the end. Yeah, and uh, you know he he makes his excuses for why he's late, and Lois replies, "That's Clark, nice." Mm -hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so that good. Scene is so important. That scene is so important because that was the screen test, right? That was the one that they trusted all of the actors on, uh, and you can actually see them on YouTube right now. I think many people, Stocker Channing trying it out, uh, many people going through that scene. Hmm. It is so important. It's where the chemistry is or isn't, and you can see Christopher Reeve in an early version of the suit sweating through his giant pit stains as he's trying to intoning the lines. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, let's see if you can top that one, Glenn. You're number one. Well, I mean, I ultimately, it shames me that Batman 66, the uh, Adam West film, doesn't make it onto this list, only because uh, there's no moment from that movie. The whole movie's great. I can't pull anything out. I, I, when you try to pull out... Some days you can't get rid of a bomb when he's just running around the dock trying to throw a bomb away, but he keeps turning, running into people with uh, infants or uh, ducks or nuns. Um, then you have to kind of get rid of the exploding shark. How can you get rid of the exploding shark? So I just wrote the whole movie off. It exists in my heart, but not necessarily on this list. Hmm. My number one is the entire Krypton opening from Superman, colon, the movie, for a very specific reason that has to do with the comics. I always have to explain why I love that stuff so much to non-comics people, because it's hard for me to convey to them what a bold and ballsy move it was on Donner's part to make Krypton look like that, because the Krypton of the comics hadn't changed its look since it was introduced in 1939 or so. I mean, well, actually, technically, in 1938. It was a retro future Tomorrowland place where there were, every building was a tall spire and everybody went around with headbands and shoulder hoops and tights and tunics. It hadn't changed in 40 years. It was kitschy, but there was no way it would work cinematically. None. Because it was, as soon as you try to put that Krypton on screen, you end up with Plan 9 from Outer Space. So they went in a completely opposite direction. They made it grand. They made it austere. They made it really portentous. Now, granted, once the film settles in a bit, you realize that everybody's kind of wearing aluminum foil. That's a thing. Hmm. But once you get past that, you notice that the first words spoken in the film are Jor-El intoning basically to the camera as he's uh, condemning the three criminals to the Phantom Zone. He says, 
This is no fantasy, no careless product of wild imagination. And it is impossible to read that as as anything but Donner's mission statement for this film. Exactly yeah. as Chris said, verisimilitude, right? We want you to believe this stuff. You will believe a man can fly. That's what he's trying to do there, this kind of mythic myth-making that has no tunics, no shoulder hoops, no headbands, just uh, Marlon Brando, Marlon goddamn Brando, to, to sell the thing. Right. Even if he has to do it by reading his lines off of Susanna York's forehead, he's going to sell it to you. Even if he has to do it by refusing to pronounce Krypton the way everyone else in the movie pronounces it. It's Krypton. Yes, Krypton. <laughs> yes. No one, no one is going to correct Marlon Brando. Oh, yeah, you're going to go up to Marlon Brando and say, mm, can we do that again? So that's my pick. Glenn, you are guilty <laughs> of making a great choice for number one. That is a fantastic sequence and so surprising in many ways. And the fact is it's actually a little bit creepy i remember as a kid seeing those those heads and the way they spoke when they said that they were guilty and finding it all a little bit bizarre but in a really good way yeah absolutely. yeah krypton is not a utopia krypton is really presented as this uh, austere icy kind of forbidding place yeah well it's been a long time since i've seen superman the movie i'm not going with the colon and i'm not going with ray shagul either i'm sorry i'm sorry glenn but i'm picking the scene from that Richard Donner film where Superman saves Lois, the helicopter rescue. Now, Glenn, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this isn't part of that first night sequence you had at number two, right? It is, actually. Okay, it's, it is. It's between, say, Jim and rescuing the cat in the tree. Okay, yeah, I, I wasn't sure, and I wasn't sure if I missed that in your comments, but I'm just picking out that particular part, and I think maybe just because it is the first sequence that comes to mind for me when I think about Superman, where we really see him in kind of all of his glory there, not only saving Lois, but the way uh, he manages to do that. And then, of course, we get that next step where the helicopter falls as well. And he's just so casual about the way he saves them, saves everybody involved in that sequence. And I think what really stood out to me watching it again today on YouTube is the grace that Christopher Reeve has as Superman, right? Like you think about Cavill, and I like Cavill generally, but in keeping with his character, Every time he takes off or lands, it's with this huge thud. You know, it's like he's angry even when he's flying, right? And, <laughs> and and here you just get at the end of that scene where he talks with Lois there up on the helipad. And then we get that great exchange where she says, who are you? And he says simply, a friend. And then he just gracefully goes up into the sky and takes off. Like he is someone who is relishing a little bit the ability to do what he can do and what only he can do. And of course, we do get the great exchange there in the middle after he saves her where he says, I've got you. And she says, you've got me. Who's got you? So that humor, that playfulness, that banter that you're absolutely right comes through throughout that whole movie between Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve. It's really on display there in that first meet cute disaster scene. So the helicopter rescue, my top choice. And those are our top five Superman, Batman movie moments. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the list and hear your picks as well. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Guys, you were so good. You were so good that I'm actually wondering if you guys can just come back every week and do this instead of me and Josh. Can you guys just do every top five? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if Josh still wants to do, like, the Pixar movies and stuff, that would, that would be okay. <laughs> I like I mean, it. I, I like Pixar, don't get me wrong. But, I think uh, that... You know, I don't, I don't want to deny anyone their, uh, right. you know, their, their favored um, subject. <laughs> I think that's a good strategy. It just might work. Again, you guys were great. Chris, anything you would like to plug here in closing? 
You know, I would like to encourage Film Spotting Nation to pick up a copy of The Caped Crusade, oh. Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture by Chris and by Glenn Weldon. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fine, fine book. If you hung in for, through this entire discussion, you will find plenty to delight you. It's a completely engaging read. Uh, Glenn's critical voice and humor comes through very strongly, even, even more so than in his, his prior book about Superman. I cannot endorse it highly enough. How very humble and giving of you. You really are Clark Kent, Chris. Yeah, right. Holy crap. <laughs> what about you, Glenn? Now you don't have a book to plug because yeah, Chris did nothing. it for you. I got nothing. Uh, yeah, you should follow uh, Chris on Twitter. He is very good at that. That is a yeah, we're, we're, we're getting into the time of year when you're going to get a lot of updates on how much I'm sweating. So you <laughs> okay. don't want to miss out on that film spot. Lots of running. You do a lot of running. You can't fly yet. Yeah. But so you can do, run. Do it advisedly, but definitely follow him on Twitter. He's well, funny. Definitely hear Glenn and hear Chris occasionally as well on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. You can get it via iTunes. Guys, again, thank you so much for being our guest experts this week. We will have to do it again. That was super fun, Adam. Great. And that is our show. One final thank you to Glenn, Chris, and of course, Michael Phillips. Over at filmspotting.net, that's our website. That's where you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and more. While you're there, take part in the Elite Eight round of Film Spotting Madness, Director's Edition, 32 directors, only one survives to direct another day. Round three voting is live. Now for our radio listeners, if you want to hear Michael and I get into all the round two results and share our choices for round three, check out the podcast edition of this show, which is also at filmspotting.net or via iTunes. If you haven't already, strongly encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting streaming video unit, and the next picture show. You can find both of those in iTunes as well. Out in wide release, God's Not Dead 2 and Meet the Blacks. This is a comedy, ostensibly starring George Lopez and Mike Tyson. Out in limited release, there are a lot of interesting limited releases this weekend. Everybody wants some. The latest from Richard Linklater. Born to be Blue, the Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker biopic, strongly recommended by me and a good candidate for this year's Golden Brick. I Saw the Light, Tom Hiddleston as Hank Williams, speaking of musician biopics, and Cresha. Michael Phillips highly recommended that indie family drama, also a Golden Brick candidate. And Midnight Special is opening the latest from director Jeff Nichols. Next week on the show, Josh will be back and we will review Midnight Special, as well as the fourth and final film in our Elaine May Marathon, Ishtar. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Music from Andrew Bird from his new album, Are You Serious? More info at andrewbird.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.